At the end of the last episode, I promised this next one would be about developing reads on new players and dealing with bad luck. That episode went in a bunch of different directions I wasn't expecting, and I'm not ready to share it yet, so this episode is about two entirely different topics, gambling and cheating. Welcome to the second episode of Third Man Walking. In 2014, 23-year-old Dan Coleman won the Big One for One Drop tournament at the World Series of Poker, collecting a $15.3 million prize that remains the second largest ever awarded in a single tournament. But in photos taken at the end of the event, Coleman wears a strained smile or a frown. Following his big win, he also declined most interview requests. Later, on the poker forums at 2plus2.com, Coleman wrote, Poker is not a game where the pros are always happy and living a fulfilling life. To have a job where you are at the mercy of variance can be insanely stressful and can lead to a lot of unhealthy habits. It is also not a game where the amateurs are always happy to be losing their money for the sake of entertainment. The losers lose way more money at this game than the winners are winning. A lot of this is money they can't afford to lose. In a perfect world, markets are based on informed consumers making rational transactions. In reality, sadly, that's not the case. Markets are based on advertising trying to play on people's impulses and targeting their weaknesses in order for them to make irrational decisions. It bothers me that people care so much about poker's well-being, as poker is a game that has such a net negative effect on the people playing it, both financially and emotionally. I capitalize off this game that targets people's weaknesses. I do enjoy it. I love the strategy part of it, but I do see it as a very dark game. Coleman's post, which Yahoo Sports described as the saddest reaction to winning $15 million you'll ever see, contains a number of obvious truths about poker. Professional players, especially on the lower rungs of the poker ladder, can develop unhealthy lifestyles. Players of all types can be fueled by delusion that they might be able to sustain last month's win rate forever, that the huge tournament score they crave, or worse, need, is just around the corner, or, more broadly, that they stand a chance long-term against pros and the house in a less-than-zero-sum game. Today we'll look into the dark side of poker. In a landscape polluted by addiction, scamming, and delusion, what about this game is even good for us? Poker players frequently call each other degens, which is short for degenerates or degenerate gamblers. It's often a term of endearment, and the verb form degening can refer to types of gambling by poker players within or outside poker that are relatively harmless. Poker is a strategy game, and compared to, for example, most other things you can do at a casino, it's slow and deliberative. In the past couple decades, casinos have popped up in or near most major cities in America, offering truly degeny games like blackjack, craps, and roulette. And if civil society has completely disintegrated since then, very few would say gambling is one of the main reasons. We've largely decided that these games are fine, or at least tolerable. But if you've ever played these games, or stood behind someone playing, you've watched money flying around almost too quickly to keep track. Poker, for the most part, isn't like these games. 
You've got to wait your turn, and in live poker it's possible to play for hours or even days without anything truly significant happening. The thing is, though, poker is gambling. At some point on the spectrum, it is degenning. And if you like one form of gambling, there's a decent chance you'll like more extreme ones too. There are many types of degenning. Beginning with things you can do within poker, you can play the game conservatively, or in a looser, more degeny style, taking big risks by frequently putting lots of money on the line. You can straddle, in which you put in extra money at the beginning of a hand in order to create a larger pot. If your opponents are willing, you can also add extra levels of degening to poker by playing bomb pots, a chaotic poker variant in which every player at the table puts in several blinds worth of chips, and the dealer proceeds immediately to the flop. There can be good reasons to do these things at the poker table, especially if you want to entertain degenning opponents. But they increase variance, leading sometimes to bigger winning days, but also to bigger losses. Poker players also frequently bet on things that aren't directly poker-related, like the outcomes of sporting events playing on the TVs above them, or spontaneous things, like whether the next flop will have more red cards or black, or the likelihood of a player throwing a water bottle into a trash can across the room. Perhaps the most entertaining subgenre of this type of bet is the game Laden Thinks, created by Antonio Esfandiari and Phil Locke, and named after the Norwegian pro Johnny Laden. The bettors pick a player at the table and then ask that player to estimate something that can be quantified, like the number of miles between Los Angeles and Tokyo, or the value of the poker chips currently at play in the casino. That player writes down her answer, and the other players at the table compete to get closest not to the correct answer to the question, but what the first player thinks is the right answer. It's 5,472 miles between LA and Tokyo as the crow flies, but if the Laden in your game thinks it's 600, the person who gets closest to that answer is the winner. Within the broader poker world, there have been far crazier bets. Two years ago, businessman Bill Perkins bet poker streamer Jamie Staples, who weighed 304 pounds, and his brother Matt, who weighed 134, that they couldn't get to the same weight within a year, offering them 50 to 1 odds. A year later, the brothers each weighed in at 188.3 pounds and collected $150,000. Last year, Rory Young, a player at the Bellagio in Las Vegas, bet another player, Rich Alotti, $100,000 that he couldn't stay in a darkened, soundproof bathroom for 30 days. Stop to consider that for a second. Alotti was essentially agreeing to what amounted in many respects to paid solitary confinement. Alotti started hallucinating after three days, but relied on yoga to quell negative thoughts. After 20 days, Young agreed to pay Alotti 62 grand, and he finally exited the room into what must have been blasting sunlight. Then, of course, there are all the other kinds of gambling poker players can do. There's sports betting, which is a common discussion topic at poker tables, and, as we've discussed, the casino outside the poker room offers a variety of distractions. Talented poker players who can't resist the lure of the pits can quickly blow through their profits, and recreational players frequently leave the poker table with money they hope to spin up at roulette or blackjack, or arrive at the poker room to take bigger shots with newly acquired winnings. Not all poker-adjacent gambling is harmful. Some of it is just silly. But poker can go hand-in-hand -hand with other potentially unsavory activities. Almost all casinos serve alcohol, generally brought to the table by women in short skirts. I've played in one casino with huge portraits of naked women on the walls, and another where you play with chips decorated by photos of naked women. 
between 80 and 90% of my opponents throughout my poker career have been men, which isn't surprising when you consistently see things like that. Until about 15 years ago, the stereotypical image of poker was one of balding, unkempt middle-aged guys sitting around card tables in a wood-paneled basement. Poker has come a long way since then, but the game still smells slightly of rec room cigar smoke. Some higher stakes games depend on the participation of recreational players who like making genuinely offensive jokes. If you don't like these things, your two options, at least in the eyes of most players who understand how the ecosystem works, are to put up with it or not play that game. I'm no fan of misogyny or homophobia, and when I encounter them at the table, I try to find ways to subvert them or even sometimes directly challenge them. And I've drawn the line forcefully most of the times I've encountered overt racism. But there have been times when I've kept my mouth shut because the player being sexist or homophobic was losing so much money to me and the other players at the table. There's an unwritten code among pros that you don't rock the boat in those situations. Obviously, if you dislike misogyny and homophobia, this is weak tea. Morally, it's hard to justify. Recently, longtime poker podcaster Andrew Brokus asked his Twitter followers, is there a strong correlation between whales and misogyny? If yes, how do you explain it? The responses varied. High stakes legend Ike Haxton wrote, probably there's some correlation between whales and misogyny, but I think the stronger correlation is with the privilege and disinhibition to feel like they can get away with being vocal about it. To be clear, most so-called whales aren't misogynistic, and most of them certainly aren't overtly misogynistic. But the misogynistic whale is clearly a recognizable type within the poker community. This player finds in poker a sort of gray area where, because he's giving away money, his bad behavior might be tolerated. A couple of the biggest games I've ever played in revolved around rich recreational players who said all kinds of offensive things, and they were being entertained by pros who participated as well. By far the worst of these games were in cities I didn't live in, so I wasn't close with many of the players involved. I didn't participate, but I also didn't say anything, figuring it wouldn't do any good to pick fights. If my regular game included lots of misogyny or homophobia, I'd probably mostly ignore it until I built a rapport with the players and then asked them in a friendly way to stop the really bad stuff. It's April 21st, 2019, and I just got back from a really frustrating session. There are lots of ways of getting unlucky in poker, and if you watch poker on TV, the type of bad luck you're probably most used to seeing is when there's a player in a tournament who gets their money in as a big favorite and then some unlikely card hits on the turn or the river to make them lose the hand. And that's certainly one way of getting unlucky, but there are lots of others, many of which are more subtle. First of all, you can just not get dealt good hands for long periods of time. You can also get dealt good starting hands that don't hit the board. You can flop draws and then miss all your draws. You can be in hands where your opponents flop draws and they hit all their draws. You can be in hands where you have something good but no one else has anything. You can make good hands but your opponent makes a slightly better hand to beat you. 
you can make a good hand, but the only other player in the pot is an opponent who's good, who won't pay you off. There are just lots of ways for things to go wrong. And when you're in a bad stretch in poker, it can feel like lots of those things are happening in succession. So today wasn't a disaster session, really. I didn't lose any really massive pots, but I just lost every significant spot I got into. It was a 510 game with a cap of $2,500. And every time I lost a pot, I would top back off to $2,500. And I don't think my stack ever got above $2,700 at any point during the day. So I was just not able to really get anything going. There were two significant hands. In the first one, I was in the low jack, which is the seat three off the button with ace nine of spades. And I raced to $35. An older gentleman on the button who I had never seen before called. And so did a player in the big blind who only had about $300. The button had a full stack of $2,500. So we went to a flop with $105 in the middle. And it came ace of clubs, nine of clubs, seven of clubs. So three clubs. I have ace nine of spades for top two pair. The... Big blind checked, and I bet $45. The button, who is the deep-stacked unknown player, called, and the big blind folded. So now there was $195 in the pot, and the turn was an offsuit 5, that is a 5 that's not a club. So the board now is ace of clubs, 9 of clubs, 7 of clubs, and an offsuit 5. I bet $110, hoping to get value from any ace my opponent might have or any hand like the king of clubs, the queen of clubs, some sort of club that is hoping to make a flush. I think I could have bet a little bit bigger, but I bet $110, and he called again. So there was $415 in the pot heading to the river, which was an offsuit three, which seemed like a good card overall. The player on the button appeared to be a recreational player, and I think many recreational players would raise a, a flush uh, on the flop or the turn. So I think I should have the best hand here most of the time. I think there are a couple ways I can approach this river. One is to bet. But I think if this player has just an ace, most players at 510 in 2019 are good enough to fold one pair to three streets of aggression, especially on a board that has three clubs on it. So the other approach I can take is to check and call a bet assuming that my opponent could turn the king of clubs or the queen of clubs or some other hand into a bluff. So I do go ahead and check, and my opponent now bets $450. So I hadn't been planning on folding to a bet, but when my opponent overbets the pot like this, I'm a little bit concerned because this isn't a move that a lot of recreational players will make all that much with bluffs. Some of them will, uh, but a lot of them won't. So I'm starting to think, and now my opponent offers to let me pay $25 to see one of his cards. So I'm, I'm feeling like I'm going to be a sucker here, but I'm also feeling like this is going to help me figure things out. So I go ahead and give him the $25. And he turns over the Deuce of Diamonds, which is a card that makes no sense and doesn't connect with the board in any obvious way. So when a player offers to show a card, 
and then shows a card like this, the Deuce of Diamonds, it's actually a really weird show of strength. That means that somehow he must have four deuce with the deuce of diamonds, even though it doesn't make any sense that he would call on the flop with that hand or pre-flop with that hand or on the turn. So I'm not sure what's going on here. Uh, and I'm sort of torn between the fact that what he's done here by showing me this card seems so strong and the fact that his line just makes no sense with any hand with the deuce of diamonds in it. So I don't know. I... I end up calling, and he does show four deuce with the four of clubs for a rivered straight. So he, he called on the flop with a four high flush draw, and then on the turn with a four high flush draw and a gut shot, and then hit the gut shot on the river. Uh, I feel like an idiot for giving him the extra $25, but there's really nothing to do about this one except chuckle and move on to the next hand. So a couple hours later... The player under the gun plus one raises to $35. I'm in the cutoff seat, one off the button, with two black aces and re-raise to $120. The button calls, which is a little bit weird, and the original raiser also calls. So the button is not the kind of player who will just call a re-raise like this, having no money in the pot previously, with... A bunch of random bad hands like he has something pretty good here probably a hand like jacks or something like that the uh, player who raised can have a lot of other things as well um, but he mostly has good hands and I, I know this player well he will frequently limp with lower type hands speculative type hands from early position so there's 370 dollars in the pot heading to the flop and it comes five of spades, four of spades, three of diamonds, which I think is a really good flop for me. In particular, I don't think the button ever really connects with this flop. I don't think he ever really calls a re-raise cold pre-flop with 7-6 or any of these small pairs. The other player can conceivably have a few of those hands, but I think he would play a lot of them as limps pre-flop. So I think I'm ahead the vast majority of the time. The player under the gun plus one checks, and I bet $150. The button folds, and the original raiser calls. So now there's $670 in the pot heading to the turn, which is the queen of diamonds. So now the board is five of spades, four of spades, three of diamonds, queen of diamonds, and I have two black aces. Again, I think I should be ahead here, unless... Uh, my opponent has pocket queens specifically. Um, I check, or sorry, he checks, and I bet $380, and he calls again. So now there's $1,430 in the pot heading to the river, which is the king of spades. So that's a third spade. So now the board is five of spades, four of spades, three of diamonds, queen of diamonds, king of spades, and I have aces with the ace of spades. And now my opponent leads for $700. And my first thought is just like, ugh, I mean, and there's nothing really to do in this situation but fold. He only has about $800 behind if he had $3,000 or something behind. Since I have the ace of spades and we therefore block him from having an ace high flush, 
we could maybe consider going all in, but with only $800 left behind, whatever he has, he's not folding. And I don't think he is ever really bluffing when he takes this line. I think if he is, it's kind of crazy because I have ace X of spades a lot here. And so I just have the best possible hand at a, a decent frequency. I think it's very likely he has a hand like queen jack of spades here. He called fairly quickly on the turn, so that makes a lot of sense. And there's nothing for us to really do but just fold. I end up showing a little bit of frustration. I show the guy next to me my cards, and I sort of helicopter them into the muck, which is what I'm most disappointed about. I mean, I'd rather not do that. Uh, not because either of those actions seemed, I'm sure, like any big deal to anybody else at the table, but because I just don't like showing frustration and I feel like it's sort of a fishy thing to do. Whenever I watch top players on TV, they always seem like Zen masters in these kinds of situations. And I would like to be better about those kinds of things, in part because days like these are part of the job. Phil Galfond, who is a longtime and highly respected pro, once said that the key to winning at poker when card dead is that you should not try to win at poker when card dead. And I think that's very wise and applies to running bad in general. When you're running bad, the key to playing poker is that you should not try to win at poker. And just accept that there are going to be certain days when you lose, that's part of the gig. So there's nothing to do except shrug and deal with it and try to have a better day tomorrow. Poker games that aren't in casinos can be sketchy for other reasons. A club at which I once played opened at 7 o'clock each night and closed at 4 a.m., and the bar next door closed at 2.30, which led to a bonanza of wild gambling between 3 o'clock and 4 that a friend of mine called the Magic Hour. The game was frequently crazy even in the earlier hours because it was populated in part by players whose losses in games like blackjack and craps had caused them to ban themselves from the casino a few miles down the road. The room was protected by armed security, which once got weird when one of the guards shot himself in the leg while taking off his holster to go to the bathroom. Even that game was more or less legal, operating out of a storefront and with the cautious blessing of the city's police. The room had conscientious owners who were mindful of its place in the broader community, which probably is one of the main reasons it survived. Poker also happens at what are called home games, at private residences. The rake at those games can be high, and if you go to the wrong one, the possibility of getting robbed or cheated is ever-present. Personally, I don't play those games, and if I were invited to one, I would ask a ton of questions before I went. But even if you're just in casinos, you can become the victim of a scam. In the poker community, money flows freely between players at the table, and for that reason, it frequently flows just as easily off the table. One of the great marvels of live poker is that recreational players, people just playing for fun, bring hundreds or thousands of dollars to the casino to play. In casinos, transactions for any but the biggest games are generally made with cash. 
So think about what that means. Even to play mid-stakes, recreational players frequently have to go to the bank and withdraw thousands of dollars, or they call their bank at some point to raise their ATM limits, or they reach into their safes at home and pull out stacks of $100 bills, and then they go to the casino and put it on the table to play a game they're likely to lose. That this series of steps happens, and happens repeatedly, is what keeps the poker economy going, and it's amazing that it does. But the fact that large sums of cash aren't always easy to get once you're already at the casino means players frequently loan each other money. I've only done this a few times, and only from my closest friends, but there are plenty of stories of players loaning one another money and never being paid back. Poker players also frequently travel to tournament series together, sharing cars and hotel rooms while carrying thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars in cash, and there are stories about large sums of money disappearing under such circumstances. Maybe the maid stole your bankroll, or maybe it was your roommate. Poker players also frequently back each other, which means that one player fronts the money for another to play cash games or tournaments. Any transaction of this type requires trust between the two parties. A player who backs another to play cash games might lose out when his horse understates his winnings or overstates his losses. Horse, by the way, is poker speak for a player who's backed by another, like a horse you might bet on at a track. The poker community is big on animal metaphors. If you buy action in a tournament player, you risk losing out when he oversells, which means he sells more action than his buy-in is worth, and loses the tournament to avoid paying out more than he wins. So, for example, a player sells $10,000 of action to investors who don't know each other to play a $5,000 poker tournament, then, presumably, intentionally loses the tournament and pockets the extra 5000 bucks. I say presumably because that's not always what happens. There have been at least a few stories of players overselling their action and then performing well in or even winning a tournament, thus creating mountains of debt for themselves. So for example, that same player sells $10,000 worth of action to a $5,000 tournament, but then cashes for $100,000. Now though, they might owe $200,000 to their investors rather than the $100,000 they actually got because they effectively sold their action twice. Yes, this has actually happened, and yes, it's hilarious when the world's stupidest thieves own themselves, unless of course you're one of their investors. Anytime you make a transaction in poker, whether in the game itself or on the periphery, there are risks. The film Rounders depicted a poker culture in which scams were rampant and gambling was wild, with the protagonist palling around with a cheater and repeatedly putting his entire net worth on the table in a heads-up game against a mob boss. The topic of cheating recently made the rounds in the poker world after Veronica Brill, a one-time commentator on small-stakes games streamed live from Stone's Gambling Hall outside Sacramento, accused a player named Mike Possel of cheating during those streamed games. A number of onlookers, including poker podcaster Joey Ingram, reviewed hours of footage of Possel's games and found that he'd seemingly made hundreds of thousands of dollars at a rate of about $700 an hour, during which he mostly played 1-3 and 5-5. He regularly made absurd bluffs and calls, the vast majority of which turned out shockingly well for him. Those included a hand in which he called a re-raise and then another re-raise all-in for over $4,000 with 5-4 offsuit. Both his opponents had ace-king, and another player had folded a king, making Possel a large equity favorite, despite having no hand to speak of, 
and after the players agreed to run two boards, he won half the pot of over $11,000, despite being up against two opponents. Another hand was a bomb pot in which he had 7-6 offsuit. He called on the flop and turn with just a gut shot straight draw against a better and a caller on a board of 10 of hearts, 5 of clubs, 3 of clubs, jack of diamonds, then bet all in out of turn on the river, which was an offsuit 3. Both his opponents just happened to have club draws that missed and had to fold. Poker players do weird things, and everyone has stories of strange hands they've lost, but Postle's hands were way stranger than most, and they always seemed to end with him making decisions so perfect they were spooky. He frequently made borderline clairvoyant decisions after staring down at his phone, which he placed in his lap, or putting his hands to his hat, which often had a weird bulge in the side. Internet detectives speculated that he was getting the live stream in real time on his phone, or that he was getting information via someone communicating with him through a bone-conducting speaker in his hat, or both. It speaks to the difficulty of knowing anything with certainty in this game, that there isn't yet definitive proof that he cheated, but if you think he didn't, I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you. Fortunately, neither rounders nor the postal situation really represent my day-to-day -day experience. There is plenty of cheating in home games, and the threat of cheating in online poker is ever-present. What concerns the community most at the moment are profitable bots, as well as players who might potentially use solver software in real time. But poker games and casinos currently seem relatively safe from cheating. I've personally only ever seen one player actively cheat. I was sitting beside him. He got his hand from the dealer and picked both cards off the table, so it was impossible for me not to see them. He had the ace of clubs and the five of a different suit. He limped, meaning he called the big blind, which in this case was $5. I was next to act and folded, and the following player did too, but when that player tossed his cards toward the dealer, they landed near where the player with the ace five was sitting. The player with the ace-5 quickly replaced one of his cards with one of the folded cards in front of him. It happened so fast, and honestly was so surprising, that I at first wasn't sure what I was seeing. But then he picked his cards off the table again, and now he had the ace of clubs and an offsuit 3. He hadn't gained any strategic advantage as a result of the switch. In fact, trading the 5 for the 3 had made his hand slightly worse but it was clear he had hoped to improve his hand by replacing the five with one of the dead cards, which might have been, say, a king or a club, which would have made his hand significantly better. I alerted the dealer and called the floor manager to the table, and the casino reviewed the footage of the incident. The floor man returned about 15 minutes later with security and kicked the player out of the casino. He had clearly been cheating, but even that incident was a strange case in which he ultimately gained no strategic advantage and he could perhaps have avoided getting caught by simply not picking his cards off the table so I could see them. He seemed to be guided by some pathology that had nothing to do with avoiding detection and making money, which are the things that really make cheating dangerous. I might have been the victim of other cheaters in my live poker career. In fact, I probably have. But in eight or so years of playing in casinos, I've only ever seen that one guy get caught. There isn't an epidemic of cheating in live poker. Poker does attract compulsive gamblers. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't know exactly where the line between casual gambling and problematic gambling is, 
but it seems likely that lots of poker in casinos crosses it. My guess is that there are many problem gamblers in low-stakes games like 1-2, in which the casino takes a large percentage of every pot. Many players in these games are just passing time in a way they enjoy. But others, and I don't know how many, but my guess is that it's a sizable minority, are gambling away their paychecks in games they can't really win. At the higher levels, there are various types of compulsive gambling. There's the gambling away the paycheck type, although my impression is that this kind of player is less common at higher stakes. There are also people who play fairly well, well enough to break even or maybe even win, who are motivated by a compulsion to gamble, but who've learned enough about poker that playing doesn't ruin them. And there are people who perhaps aren't compulsive gamblers in a technical sense, but who are struggling pros who don't have many options besides playing poker, or much clue what to do with their lives. All this is depressing, and if I think too hard about it, it makes me want to quit playing. If the United States in 2019 gave people many ways to make good money that weren't at least as problematic as playing poker, maybe I would quit. But I think the ethical questions poker presents are less difficult to answer than the ones I'd have to ask myself if I were, say, a pharmaceutical rep, or a Wall Street executive, or a lobbyist. But your mileage may vary. For me, playing poker is fun, and probably the most lucrative job I could have that I'd enjoy doing. And of course, not all poker playing is compulsive. If you're playing 2-5 or above, especially in a big market, you can arrange your poker life to minimize contact with problem gambling. Most of the players I've won the most from in my poker career have had stable jobs and are playing with money they can afford to lose. Most of them at least seem comfortable financially, and I think if they were forced to quit poker tomorrow, for whatever reason, they could. And, for all the negative things I've said today, there's so much that's good about poker, especially compared to anything else you could do in a casino. It enhances your reasoning skills and helps you understand risk. The ways of thinking I've picked up from poker have helped me in everything from the stock market to investing in real estate. It rewards delayed gratification. In poker, it pays to be patient, just as it pays to, for example, work hard when you're a student so you can make money later, or save money so that it grows in the market over time. Poker is competitive in a way that can be healthy. It makes you want to learn and improve. And there's a camaraderie among poker players that's rewarding and fun, even though they're competing with one another. But if you're a pro and you want to stay a pro, you have to avoid the pitfalls associated with poker. Avoid other forms of gambling. Be very careful playing poker outside established card rooms. Play games small enough relative to your bankroll that you don't risk going broke. And keep records so that you don't delude yourself. Delusion about one's abilities or chances of winning is perhaps the most common trap poker players can fall into. Consider this. Why are there more professional poker players than pro chess players or bowlers? Recently, the highest paid bowler in the world, Sean Rash, made just under a quarter of a million dollars in a year. That's a pretty good salary for a poker player. It's more than I make. But there are many players who consistently make more. So what gives? The thing that makes it practical to play poker professionally is the same thing that makes it difficult. Variance. Good players frequently lose, and bad players frequently win. On any given day, an unskilled player has a chance. Here's the thing, though. What if you don't know you aren't a good player? Or, to put it more precisely, what if you aren't accurately assessing your chances of winning today? Or what if you are aware you're not a favorite, but the thrill of winning a big pot 
or a big tournament is so great you're willing to gamble anyway. In episode 3 of Third Man Walking, we'll explore how variance, which is to say luck over small samples, changes players' lives and shapes the poker economy. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.